0: Now, I was thinking a lot about sheep as I drove here this evening. It occurs to me that might not be the most arresting opening sentence of a sermon that you've ever heard, but it it does have a certain novelty value, doesn't it? Because some of you are now thinking, why on earth were you thinking about sheep whilst you were driving here? And some of you are thinking, why were you not thinking about your driving whilst you were driving here? Well, I suppose a proportion of my brain, hopefully a significant proportion, was thinking about the road and other road users. I didn't leave anybody dead or injured on the verge or any twisted wreckage behind me, so I thank God for that. But such of my mind as could be spared from driving was thinking about sheep. Because one of the commonest descriptors of and euphemisms for God's people in the Bible is exactly that sheep I asked uh, Douglas if he would read Psalm 100 which tells us that God's people are his sheep we are the sheep of his pasture the Apostle Peter in the New Testament wrote to leaders of a church or of several churches and said be shepherds of God's flock. These people whom you are leading, said Peter, to church leaders in his day and age, uh, they they are not yours. They are the Lord's people. They are the sheep of his flock. So be a good shepherd for them. And of course the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 10, talked about those who follow him as being his Sheep, it's a wonderful thing. But it has occurred to me that it's not a very flattering way to be described, is it? I mean, I must tread carefully here. There may well be people here with uh, a much greater degree of knowledge about sheep and matters relating to sheep than I have. But I think I can confidently say this, that sheep, well, they can't possibly be as stupid as they look but they are certainly not the brightest animals in God's animal kingdom, are they? Not only are they not overly blessed with brains, but they're not particularly well equipped for offence or for defence. As anyone who, as I have on more than one occasion, as anyone who's seen a flock of sheep being chased and harried by somebody's dog that has got into their field, will know. They're not well-equipped to defend themselves and they're not well-equipped for aggression. They're easily wounded and if a sheep falls over and lands on its back, it has the most incredible difficulty, you know, getting right way up. What sheep can do, however, and they have raised this almost to the genius level, what sheep are good at doing is getting lost. Hmm? at wandering off and getting into trouble. And do you know how they do that? They graze their way into it. That's how they do it. You see, the sheep will be in a field, and the field is securely fenced. There is a fence or a hedge. And one of these bright entrepreneurial sheep will not be content with the pasture in the field. So they will have a look through the fence and they will see a particularly appetising looking bit of grass just out of reach. So what they do is they push. And pound for pound they are very strong. And they push and they push until eventually they can get their head and then possibly their shoulder and then a foreleg through the fence and eventually they break the fence they get through the hedge and they graze on the piece of pasture which first attracted their attention having done that they look up and spy a bit more appetizing grass a little bit further away so they wander over Do you see how it goes they do they graze their way into lostness so whilst it might not be the most flattering description of one of God's people to call him or her a sheep it is not altogether inappropriate, is it? Because rather like those silly old sheep, we also have really quite a gift for wandering away and finding ourselves in difficulty. Well, the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 10, talks about some of the key defining characteristics of one of God's sheep one of his followers, he says, My sheep hear my voice. They recognise it. They trust it. And they follow me. My sheep listen to me. That's one of the hallmarks of someone who really belongs to Christ. We listen to what he is saying. At one of the camps that I've referred to that I was at a week or so ago in Cornwall, I was at a wonderful Christian campsite called Menadieu Farm. It's on a hillside overlooking Drabawith Strand, just near Tintagel in that lovely part of Cornwall. And uh, it's a farm which has been developed as a campsite over many years, and uh, the meetings are, are held in a barn. Quite a good, well-built barn, but with a sort of corrugated, sort of light metal roof. Well, one night, just as I got up to preach to the young people, so the heavens opened, and the most incredible downpour came down for quite some length of time. And it was so loud that the young people could no longer hear me. So quickly, I was kitted out with a little microphone like this. And I could then sort of compete with the the drumming of the rain. But I made a point of saying to the young people, right, now you can hear me. But that is not the same as listening, is it? If somebody speaks clearly enough and with sufficient volume, and you are blessed with reasonable hearing, you cannot help but hear what they say. But that is not the same as listening. The Lord Jesus said, One of the ways by which we know we are really His sheep is that we hear His voice, we listen to it, and we respond when He calls very important for us to be to be listeners I have just uh, I have no copies with me but I have just recently completed the writing and the publishing of a book Uh, you will look in vain for it on Amazon you will not find it propping up the shelves in your local Christian bookstore it will never be a runaway bestseller, and I'm not. It's not just some little exercise in public modesty. It is because it is a book on preaching. It is a book for a particular niche. It will never be uh, go into great sales. But I've poured out my heart and my mind on this important subject of preaching, and I've put it into this little this little book. And when from time to time I talk to groups of people and uh, I teach public speaking and preaching, uh, there is one question which nearly always comes up from those who, who do not do much preaching. And this is the question people say to me, how can I know what I ought to preach about when I'm invited to go and preach somewhere? How can I know what I ought to preach about? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? And the answer, at least in part, is this. Well, you must first ask yourself, what has God been saying to me? That is where it begins. It's not, Lord, what do you want me to say? It is, Lord, what have you been saying to me? And that question is predicated on the assumption that we are listening to what God is saying because we are his sheep and because we need to be shepherded by him. His sheep. Listeners followers. And another thing about sheep, according to John chapter 10, is this, that the sheep are very reliant upon the shepherd, particularly when danger threatens. The Lord Jesus in that chapter in John's Gospel said, the hired hand, the man who is not the shepherd, when he sees the wolf coming, he runs away. The good shepherd is the one who stands by the sheep the good shepherd is the one who stands at the entrance to the sheep pen and he effectively says to the wolf and he says to any predator and any person who intends harm for the sheep he says if you want to get to these sheep you have to come through me that is one of the hallmarks of a good shepherd and I tell you this quite frankly friends over many years and involvement in a wide range of churches and often it's my privilege to sit down with church leadership teams And talk through with them issues of change and growth and all these things which can be so difficult for us to to handle. Uh, Over many years, I've a number of times had uh, church leaders come to me and say, Oh, I don't like the way things are going in my church. You know, they're beginning to go down this road or that road. They're beginning to buy into this teaching or that teaching. I don't like the feel of this. I don't think it's good for us. I feel I must leave. And I look at them and I say, really? Really? Your flock is threatened. And that is your instinct, is it? To leave the sheep. Now I know, no two circumstances are exactly alike. Sometimes that might be the appropriate thing to do. But the scripture clearly lays down as a general principle, the good shepherd is the one who stands by the sheep when danger comes threatens it's there in John 10 well Christians those who've decided to follow Christ we are his sheep and what a shepherd he is I mean he's not careless he knows his sheep he's not indifferent to what the sheep go through he cares for us he knows our weakness if necessary he carries us He even laid down his life for us. What a tremendous shepherd. Let me ask you a serious question. Are you one of his sheep? Really. Have you put your trust in Jesus? He is the good shepherd. He is the best shepherd. It is a wonderful thing to be part of his flock. Wonderful shepherd, Lord Jesus. Now, there are other words which are used to describe Christians. Followers of Christ in the Bible, I mean, what about the word soldier? Second Timothy, let's just turn to it together, shall we? Second Timothy, chapter 2. I mean, how different to the she- sheep is that? What a contrast. The Christian is not only a sheep, but the Christian is a soldier. 2 Timothy, in chapter 2. And verse 1, words written by the Apostle Paul to his younger friend Timothy. Timothy was seeking to lead God's flock, to shepherd God's flock in the city of Ephesus and to add to it. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Reach out to those who are not yet part of the flock. So, 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, my son. This is the sort of pastor your church needs, Timothy. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Maintain your walk with God. Build up your faith, Timothy. Verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach Others, don't just maintain your personal spiritual walk, but multiply your ministry. And then he says in verse 3, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Well, there we are. Do you remember, some of you, that uh, little children's song or chorus that we used to teach to boys and girls some years ago, I'm Too Young to March in the Infantry? Just raise your hand if you remember that, and and then I'll stop quoting it. Hands down, thank you. Just needed that little bit of interaction, because I felt like I slipped into a parallel universe for a few minutes. I'm Too Young to March in the Infantry, Ride in the Cavalry, Shoot the Artillery. What a wonderfully militant little song that is. I'm too young to zoom over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Well, it's not just a little bit of ditty for, for children to be taught. And of course, it had all those sort of accompanying actions to go with it. It's not just a little children's song. It is a biblical thing. We are, we, we are enlisted people. We have signed up. We are called to be good soldiers of and for Jesus Christ, and I began to turn over in my mind. What, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well number one, it struck me that soldiers generally have an enemy. Someone against whom they occasionally have to fight. I have a, a friend who is a Canadian military chaplain and uh, in email correspondence with him recently, he carries the rank of major in the Canadian Air Force And in email correspondence recently, he told me they have just acquired a puppy. And having more than a normal interest in dogs, I emailed back and I said, "Uh, what what have you called your puppy? He said, well, we're thinking of calling it Satan. I said, well, you know, I don't want to be all sort of pompous about it, but I think that might be a little bit inappropriate. Why, Why have you decided to call it Satan? He said, because it prowls around seeking what it may devour. And those of you who laugh at that, demonstrate by doing so, that you're familiar with the scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4. Your adversary, the devil, wrote the Apostle Peter, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary, your enemy, we have an enemy, who is out to get us. He will pounce, he will pick his us off. I mean, we're almost back to the sheep analogy again, aren't we? Our enemy is prowling around. Um, I may well have said this on a previous visit to to Ladyfield, but I'll say it again. Um, if you've, uh, I mean, you, you might have been on safari to one of the African game parks for all I know. I, I, I actually go pretty well every year to uh, a, a youth with a mission base, which is right next door to a, a game park in, in Kenya, and I wander out in, in, in the bush, and I 've seen all manner of antelope and, and sometimes been fortunate to see giraffe and ostrich and, and wildebeest and a whole range of animals. but i 've not actually ever seen any predators, any of the big cats uh, in the wild. But I have, like most of us, seen those wonderful documentaries on television. Uh, featuring prides of lions, packs of lions. And I think most of us have come to understand that when a lion is hungry and goes on the hunt, uh, the the lion does not tend to just wander up to the biggest buffalo it can find. The one with the widest spread of scimitar-like horns. The one with hooves like dinner plates that would split the lion's skull if it were to kick it. No, no, they don't do that. They slink around the fringe, the periphery of the herd. They're looking for the animal which has gone off on its own because it's unwell and is dying. They're looking for the cow which has just dropped a calf and is away there suckling in in the bush, away from the herd. Or they seek to separate from the herd those young or elderly or infirm animals. In other words, the lions prey on the vulnerable and the vulnerable animals are the ones not that are right in the middle of the herd but the ones on the edge. That is how our enemy works. That is one of the reasons we are called to be and put into the church of Jesus Christ. Because there is security for us in as much as we are very much in the middle of the flock, in the middle of the herd. It is when people stop going to services. It is when they they just become now and then in their attendance, at prayer meetings and all manner of services and events and home groups. That's when we become vulnerable. That's when our enemy can more easily pick us off. That's why the New Testament says that as soldiers we, we need to rely on our comrades. Do not give up meeting together, says the book of Hebrews as some of you have already started doing. But get together more and more as you see the day of Christ approaching. So we have an enemy. The second thing about being a soldier is that soldiers expect life to be tough at times, don't they? Endure hardship. This is not an exhortation to merely bear stoically the usual problems and vicissitudes of life which come on all people. This is a hardship I'm sure that Paul is talking about here which comes directly as a consequence of our Christian faith and our Christian testimony. Be prepared to endure hardship because you are a Christian and for the sake of Christ. The third thing about a soldier which occurred to me was that a soldier needs to be training and preparing and be ready for battle. One of the one of my favorite movie actors years ago who always played tough guy action roles was Charles Bronson. Anybody here remember Charles Bronson? You're all such good godly people. You, you, you I bet some of you you spell cinema with an S don't you? Some you yeah? <laughs> well Charles Bronson was a movie actor um, some years ago and they I say he always played tough guy roles and there was a a movie made once on the theme of uh, the Battle of the Bulge, which was a major battle in the Second World War. And in this movie, uh, Bronson plays an officer, and the the barracks, the camp where he is stationed, comes under attack, and the call goes out, the the men have to uh, go out to to combat whatever they've been doing up till then. They have to fight. And in the movie, Bronson runs into the cookhouse, And he says to three or four of the soldiers, you men, grab your rifles, follow me. They turn around and say, but we're cooks. And then he comes out with one of the great lines of the Hollywood movies. He said, lunch is over, grab your rifles and follow me. You didn't enlist to be a cook, you enlist to be a soldier. We need to be ready to engage our enemy and to take the gospel to people. That's what Paul writes in the, his letter to the Ephesians. Ha, have your feet shod. Be ready. Uh, some years ago we were on holiday as a family in the south of France and not too far away from the, the lovely uh, resort of Nice we went uh, inland and we found a, a lovely fast flowing fairly shallow river and we, we as a family sort of decamped to there and we got down, sat down there on the, on the banks and we put a little rubber inflatable boat into the river and my daughter Zoe, I mean it was a long time ago, I th- think she was probably only about three and she's 35 now, so it's a nice contemporary illustration, isn't it? And uh, we put Zoe in this little rubber boat and uh, I took my eyes off her or whatever, I can't quite remember the details, but suddenly I heard a piercing scream and she was being carried very swiftly downstream in this little boat. Well of course I took off after her, but I had bare feet not even flip-flops you ever tried running in bare feet over small jagged semi-submerged algae-covered rocks (laughs) very painful very difficult fortunately somebody further downstream saw what was happening and intercepted her and saved her from I suspect quite serious injury or drowning I would have if I could have but I just wasn't ready I did not have my feet shod, as Paul puts it in that passage on the armor of God, with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Very important, if we're soldiers, that we are ready for action. And then, fourthly, and this comes directly from our passage in 2 Timothy, the soldier is called to give priority to military matters. By the way, just backtracking, if I may, for a moment, on this being ready for action and ready for Christian service. On the camp I was out in Cornwall, some of the older campers, the 18, 19-year-old campers, were staying on at that campsite the following week to be leaders when the younger children, the younger people, came into the camp. You get the, you get the picture, you see. And uh, some of them were saying, Bob, uh, what should we do if one of our younger campers comes to us and says they want to become a Christian? Because part of the purpose, indeed the large part of the purpose of these Christian summer camps, is to reach and teach young people and children for Christ. In the context of a good Christian holiday, but it's the reaching and the teaching which is the prime thing, you see. So they said, what what should we do if some of the campers come and say they want to become Christians? I said, well, there are two options, I think. Uh, Number one, you could take that child or those children to see the... Padre, that is a person like me, who's there for the week to teach and to explain the Bible. You could do that. I said, but a better option, I think, would be for you to lead them to Christ yourself. Well, you should have seen the look of panic and alarm, which flitted across their faces. They said, we don't know how to do that. Well, I wasn't surprised. I think there are a great many people in the churches who do not know how to do that. And are, to that extent, not ready for action. Somebody said years ago that every Christian, every Christian, should know the Bible well enough to be able to show a person that they are a sinner, to show a person that Christ is the saviour of sinners, to show them thirdly how Christ can become their saviour, and to show them fourthly how they can be sure that they are saved. Did you get that? Know the Bible well enough to be able to show someone that they are a sinner could you do that are you ready for that could you show someone secondly in the Bible that Christ is the Savior of sinners could you show them how Christ can become their Savior and could you show them and speak to them about how they can be sure that they are saved that's being ready for action friends. well fourthly about a soldier the soldier should give priority to military matters. That's what the scripture says. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Now, that verse has from time to time been understood by many people to, to, be, to put a complete embargo on, on any Christian being involved in, for example, local politics or local residence group or anything of that sort. Indeed, some people on the fringe of the Christian faith would use that text to, to explain why they will not be involved in military service. Um, I was in a church at the time of a general election a while ago which felt very strongly that it wasn't appropriate for them as Christians to be involved in voting. And that's why I smiled to myself when someone stood up and prayed at the prayer meeting and said this, Lord, Lord, I said, yeah, You know, many of us in this church don't believe in voting, but we pray that the people of your choice will be elected. (laughs) If you can't see the complete logical non there, then I will explain it to you afterwards. But I just want to point out that the people who get voted for tend to be the ones that get elected, you know. It's about degree, friends. I suggest to you it is about degree. That is the degree to which we become embroiled in affairs which are, as this passage puts it, civilian affairs. For example, uh, I am currently the chairman, only um, temporarily, I've refused to go forward with it very much further, but I'm currently the chairman of a local residence action group in my own community. I am coordinating our responses To a district council plan to site a permanent gypsy traveller site within 100 yards of my home and to build possibly 800 homes in the field which surrounds my home. Now, being mildly telepathic, I can see the little thought bubble above many of your heads. You're all thinking, what a nimby this chap is, aren't you? In fact, one Christian man said to me, well, where do you think he should live then? I said, I don't know, next to you? Which he then didn't think was such a good idea. Now, look, I'm not racist. And gypsies and travellers are recognised by the law of this country as being a distinct ethnic group. So let's talk bluntly here. If you can't say it about a black person, you can't say it about a gypsy. And the reason I took the chairmanship of our group was I was very concerned at the intemperate language and the racist attitudes which were being shown by members of my community. And Rita and I thought about it and I decided this was a chance to have a little bit of salt and light in this situation and to make our arguments and to make evidence-based and reason-based arguments not purely emotive or prejudiced ones do you see that I feel it's appropriate for me to be involved in that way my community have recognized leadership and communication skills in me and I've been able to share testimony with them about where those skills come from and what it is I do that's developed them do you see and so I've got the thing going but it is about degree and I feel very strongly from the Lord this passage has been very powerful in my thinking That I must not become so embroiled in this this protest and this representation aspect I must not become so embroiled in this that it begins to weigh against my priority calling my priority calling is to preach and teach the gospel I don't want to become embroiled in civilian affairs any more than would be appropriate for me, because I have a priority, and we all have a priority. I remember the story of the um, chap who, in civilian life, was a watchmaker and watch repairer. And at the time of the American Civil War in the 1860s, he joined up to to fight for the Union. And he was in camp with all the other soldiers in a large, tented camp, waiting for call to go to the front line. And they were there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the weeks became months, and still they were in the camp. And word got out in the camp that in civilian life, he had been a watchmaker and a watchmender. And so men came from all over the camp with their watches, and they said, would you, this isn't going, can you fix this, can you mend this, you see? And before long, his little table in his tent was covered with pieces of watches. And then the order came to arms. Move out. He turned around and said, I can't go now. I've got all these watches to mend, you see. He'd lost sight of his priorities. Very important that we don't lose sight of our priorities. And our chief concern, point number five about being a soldier, is in verse four and the last part of the verse, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Well, why not? Well, because he wants to please his commanding officer. Now, how does a soldier please a commanding officer? One word. Obedience. Obey. That's it, you see. Obey. Jesus said, if you love me, that love will find expression. That love will be authenticated by That love, that claim to love me will be given credibility by this, that you obey my commandments. Now we do not obey his commandments because we hope that by doing so we will win his love. We are loved. God has never loved you more than he loves you right now. He will never love you any less than he loves you right now. There's nothing you can do to stop him loving you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you. You are loved with a love which has its roots, not just from the beginning of time, but before there was even any time begun at all. We are wonderfully loved. But the ethics of gratitude require this of us. That in appreciation of the love he has given, we want to please him, don't we? Isn't that, isn't that a reasonable sort of thing? To want to please him. Why? Because he has loved us so very much. And if I can have recourse to another old story, which I'm sure I've, I've preached here before, I do enjoy that story of the two boys who were overheard on the pavement outside a shop. And they were overheard discussing going in to do some shoplifting. And one of the boys was overheard to say, if I go in, and I get caught, my dad will kill me. The other boy said, if I go in and get caught, it'll kill my dad. Neither of them went in, but they had different motivation, didn't they? One said, I won't do this because I'm fearful of a punishment which will land on me if I do. The other one said, I won't do this because I love my father and I do not want to grieve him. That is the ethics of gratitude. And that is what we are called to live by. That's why the Apostle Paul spent three chapters of Ephesians talking about what God has done for his people, what God will do for his people, what God has done, is doing, will do. It's all there in Ephesians 1 to 3. And then he spent the next three chapters talking about what we should be doing and who we should be for God. And there is one command, and I suppose it's in my mind because of what I was talking about uh, camp this year I mentioned that a number of people at camp this, um, this summer as happens normally at, at these young people's camps uh, But uh, I mentioned a number of people at camp had expressed interest in being baptized and i had been happy to to give out some booklets to them uh, this booklet believe and be baptized written by a friend of mine called Victor Jack um, this is a fairly recent reprinting of it and um, its minor claim to fame is that there are actually photos of me in it. Um, Not that you would know that if I didn't tell you because it's only photos of my arms. (laughs) You see uh, uh, this booklet has been around now for probably about 30 years explaining baptism and it it, it sorely needed a bit of a facelift and uh, one of my friends who's very good at layout and graphics uh, took on the job and uh, we needed some photos to go in this so a few years ago on one of our camps Uh, my friend, myself, and one of the young men on our camp went down to the sea at Swanage where we were camping and we we baptised him. He didn't need to, he'd already been baptised, but we did some baptisms in the sea with him so we could take photos. And on most of his pages, there are pictures of my arms and shoulders. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that should incline you to have a copy, but it's it's there. But when someone asks about baptism, this is a good book to give to them. And I, I mention it because, you see, the Lord said, if you love me, Obey my commandments. Well, what, what are his commandments? Well, they, there are several. But one of the most straightforward is exactly that be baptized. Be baptized. And I just want to make two very brief points before I move on about baptism. The first one is this really, strictly speaking, from the Bible, for the Christian, baptism is not an optional thing, it's actually an order. I mean, in our churches, we quite rightly don't pressurise people to be baptised. We give people literature and information and we ask them to to take their time and to come to a a decision and to discuss it with their family and discuss it with their church leaders. And That's all right and proper. But when it comes right down to it, when push actually comes to shove, Jesus said, do it. It's not optional. It's an order. And there's a very interesting passage in Acts of the Apostles in chapter 10. When the Apostle Peter has been preaching the Gospel to some people, they've believed in Jesus and become Christians, and the, the New Testament says Peter gave orders that they be baptised. It's a wonderful, I mean, it conjures up a wonderful picture in my mind. I see picture in my mind, I see Peter in a room full of these people, they've all just become Christians, having been told about Jesus, and it's almost as if Peter turns to go, and as he's going out of the door, he points at two of his disciples, two of his friends, and says, oh, by the way, you and you, baptise them. Doesn't even indicate he stays for it. He says, you and you, baptize them. Doesn't seem to be much of a choice in that, does it? But it's one of the commands of Christ. So I just want to say to any of us here who are his sheep, we are his soldiers, we, we, we are his people. Come on. Obey him in baptism. Why? Because you love him. And why do you love him? Because he first loved. It's all grace. This isn't mixing a little bit of works with with a a lovely lot of grace. No, no, it's all grace. It's the ethics of gratitude. Um, The second thing I want to say about baptism is this. Actually, and you might not agree with me on this, it's not a big deal. In some of our churches, we've made baptism, I think, dangerously close to being a bigger deal than it actually is. Because what happens in many churches in this country and in many parts of the world is that someone comes to faith in Christ, they may be young, they may be older, and then some months, often some years later, they decide to get baptised. And when they announce that, people receive that as, they say, wow, isn't that wonderful? They're really, you know, they're maturing. They're really growing up in Christ. It's a sign they're really going on spiritually. No, it's not. Baptism is not a big step, it's a baby step. It's meant to accompany turning to Christ. We have made it a big deal, but rightly understood, it is just one of those things we do simply because we love the Lord and it's what he's asked us to do. It doesn't signal that we are becoming spiritually mature at all. It's just something the Lord says, come on, get on and do it. Get on and do it. Well, I'm just going to give you one more. One more, if I may, very quickly. This time from 1 Peter, chapter 2. One more of those words which are used as a euphemism, as a, as a descriptor of Christians. 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 5. And the word is stones. We are sheep. We are soldiers. We are stones. Specifically, we are living stones, according to 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that's the Lord Jesus, rejected by men, that's significant because Peter was writing to people who, because of their faith in Christ, had been rejected. He's writing to Jews who believed in Jesus and who consequently had suffered the loss of their families, their communities, their livelihoods, their possessions. they have been rejected by their own loved ones because they had decided to follow Jesus. And Peter says, look, when you come to Christ, you're... You're coming to someone who knows what rejection is like. Because he was rejected by men. As you come to him, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. Friends, God is building something today. He is building his kingdom. He is building his church. A kingdom is an area over which a king exercises authority. Over which a king holds sway. God is extending his kingdom. As more and more people turn to Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is growing in our world. And we are privileged to be involved in what God is building. And here's the wonderful paradox. We are both We are both, his labourers, his workers, the ones with whom he is working. And we are also his building materials. Because we ourselves are the stones that he is placing in the wall of that which he is is building. What does it mean to be a living stone? Well it means number one, cooperation. Cooperation with God. Because we are living stones. That means we, we have a choice. We have a will. Rather like the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome and told them that they should be living sacrifices. Has that ever struck you as a strange expression? Because I would have thought, almost by definition, until something was dead, it couldn't be said to have been a sacrifice. We are living sacrifices. And as somebody has remarked, the problem with living sacrifices is that they have a tendency to crawl off the altar. Well, we are living stones. Every day, we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be part of what you're building. It's my choice. I choose to be a brick in what you're you're erecting. As living stones, we need to cooperate with God. We need to be willing to stay in the place he puts us and to serve in the place he puts us. Number two, being a living stone means having confidence that God has got a place for us. God has got a place for us. An old... Dry waller, you know those dry walls. Do you have them in Wiltshire? Very much. I've not particularly noticed them. I notice them more in the north. But dry walls, where stones are just placed cunningly next to and on top of each other, no mortar, no fixing element at all. Um, an old dry stone waller said a long time ago that the secret of dry stone walling was this: but having picked up a stone, the builder would never put it down again. He would always find a place into which it would fit. That seems very appropriate here. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for me. God has a plan for Ladyfield Evangelical Church. He will fit us into His plan. We can be confident of that. There's a really old hymn that had the lyric or has the lyric. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. It is a task for Master Just for you has planned. Isn't that wonderful? God's got a plan for you and a place for you and a plan and a place for each one of us. And then thirdly, being a living stone, I think, will will mean that we will have an experience of pain because you will have noticed that someone who uses works with stones has to chip off rough edges to make sure the stones will sit snugly together. Won't work if they're all odd shapes. The Bible says God disciplines those whom he loves. He has to knock rough edges off us, and that can be uncomfortable. When I was at Bible college, I, there was a, a, a lad in my year, a guy about my age, and we, to say we didn't get on would be to understate it by an enormous factor. We really just did not like each other. The chemistry between us was, we just couldn't get on at all. And uh, we were sharing a bedroom, which made things even more difficult. And eventually we went together, a little delegation of two disgruntled Bible college students to our principal. And uh, we said, please, please separate us. There will be <laughs> murder done here. We just, Please separate us. My college principal turned around and said, you must live with each other until you learn to love each other. Very difficult. Very painful. God knocking rough edges off us. And finally, what about partnership? You see, one brick lying around on the floor of a building site doesn't make a building any more than the one Christian makes a church. We are all called to be bricks in what he is doing. That means we need to have partnership with with one another to get the big picture of what God is doing. Well, friends, it's a great privilege to be a sheep in the flock, led by the shepherd. It's a great privilege to be a soldier in the army, under his command, and to be a stone in the building that he is doing as he builds his kingdom. And do you notice that there's a plurality about all those? We're not called to be a sheep on our own, we're called to be part of the flock. We're not called to be a soldier on his own, we're called to be part of the army. We're not called to be a stone on our own, we're called to be part of the building. Together, 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 That's how we express what it means to be a sheep, a soldier, and a stone. Let's pray together. Oh, I will just say, if anyone is thinking about baptism, I certainly don't want you to be badgered into it by me, but I do want you to take to heart what I've said, and I do actually have some of these books on me about baptism. Just come to me afterwards, or if you don't want to approach me yourself, just send someone in your place and ask for one of those books, and I'll happily let you have one. Let's pray together now. Father, we do have this propensity, this tendency to wander off, to wander away from you. We need you to be our our great shepherd. Lord, we're not as quick to obey as we ought to be. Please give us that desire to please our commanding officer as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be those who cooperate with you in your plans for us and your plans for your people and for your church. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. 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 Well, time has run on, but we will sing together, There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God's Son, please. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen, and if they don't, we're on page 673. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Line the two of introduction, please, and then we'll stand and sing together.